Who is it that overcomes the world? Who wins? Who do things end well for? And how does that happen? Uh, Often it looks like it's those with access to power, whether that's access to money or access to influential platforms. It's those who can who can wrestle control from the hands of others, who can come up with a way of influencing others to join them in what they're doing. Those are the ones who overcome. Those are the ones who get victory, the ones who win, the ones that things end well for. John describes the one who overcomes the world. And he describes the source of victory in very different terms in his letter, his first letter, 1 John. And he's going to do that in this morning's passage, in 1 John 5, verses 1 through 12. John has been describing how we work out and confirm our faith in Christ by loving as God loves. He's been doing that in chapter 4 in particular, and And as John rotates between these different integrated themes, he'll go back and forth between attitudes and the things we actually believe, the content of our faith and our conduct. And so he's been talking about conduct, he's been talking about attitudes in chapter 4 as he's unpacked this theme of love, especially, especially love for one another. And Now he rotates back in the direction of the things that we actually believe. What we believe that results in us being the kinds of people who love one another. And that's where he's going to go back this morning. And he's going to tell us four things about believing. In verse 1 through the beginning of verse 3, he's going to tell us that believing means belonging. And that belonging is going to explode in meaning for our relationships. To, those that, to the one that we belong to and those that we belong with. Believing means belonging. He's going to tell us in the second half of verse 3 through verse 5 that believing means winning. And it's not a superficial kind of winning. It's not the world's kind of winning. But it is real winning, real victory, real overcoming. Believing means belonging and believing means winning because verses 6 to 8, we believe in the life and death of the Son. We just sang about that. We believe in the life and death of the Son. And we believe in the life and death of the Son because we believe what God has told us. We have this testimony, not just from a human being, but from from God Himself. And we see that in verses 9 through 12. We have the single reliable source for good and dependable news. We believe what God has told us. Believing means belonging. Believing means winning. We believe in the life and death of the Son, and we believe what God has told us about the Son. That's where we're going in 1 John 5, verses 1 through 12. And before I go any further, I just want to read our text. 1 John 5, starting in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 
And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the word of the Lord. John says that whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. John Mawson, our John, graciously agreed to preach last week, and he pointed out that these, these statements about believing uh, a particular thing about Jesus are not simply a matter of having, having said something verbally about Jesus at some point in your life. It's not just a matter of parroting words. It's more than a one-time statement. Believing that Jesus is the Christ means continuing to trust in the whole, real Jesus. We could summarize it this way, bringing together the different sort of shorthand statements that John uses in his letter, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in the flesh as a real human being. He lived a perfect life and laid down that life as a satisfying, reconciling sacrifice for our sins. Every time John in his letter refers to one piece of that, he really is reminding his readers of that whole picture. Relying on that Jesus in an ongoing, whole soul kind of way. Saying, that is where I stake my hope for life. On that Jesus. Whoever believes in that Jesus, John says, has been born of God. Meaning, that person has been given a new life as part of a new family. With a new set of relationships. No matter how upstanding or well-connected your natural family is, being born into that family is never enough. Jesus pointed that out to somebody who was born to a family that probably was well-connected and upstanding. A member of the council named Nicodemus in John 3, Nicodemus shows up and says something nice to Jesus, and Jesus 
cuts to the point immediately in John 3.3 3, and he tells him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That birth that Jesus was referring to is a birth that John says in John 1.13, the birth that happens not of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And just like your, your natural place of belonging and your natural nature are established by your natural birth, being born of God results in a new nature and a new belonging, including a new set of relationships. God, if you are a believer in Jesus, God has brought you into a father-child relationship with himself. You've been brought into a relationship with the Father that fulfills everything that father-child relationships are intended to picture. Think about a healthy relationship between a father and a child. Now, no relationship is perfectly healthy, but you've seen at least glimmers of healthy relationships. And, and what are those relationships like? How, how does a child look at his or her father in a basically healthy relationship? If you were to ask a young child, do you, do you love your daddy? Do you love, do you love your father? The child would say, yes, I love my father. And, and that's in an imperfect relationship. Here, we've been brought into a relationship with a father that is, in terms of the way our father relates to us, is perfectly healthy. And so, if you are born of God, you're brought into the fulfilled version of a father-child relationship. And as a result, inescapably, at a basic level, you love him. Of course, you love your father. But we're learning to actualize that. We're learning to live it out. But you do because God has brought you into that relationship. If you're born of God. You love him. And as a result of being brought into that father-child relationship, you are also brought into a fundamentally healthy relationship with everyone else who has been born of God, who's been brought into that same family. And so you love those who are born of God. Everyone, John says in verse 1, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. <clears throat> Being a child of God comes with new relationships. This whole thing, this whole package of new relationships, of mutual love, starts with the love of God that has acted to bring us into those new relationships. There, there really are unavoidable results of having been first loved by God. John has laid out that, that first love that defines what real love is in First John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we can say in 4.19, we love because He first loved us. Because it all comes together as a package, loving God really can't ever be separated from loving His children. They, they come together 
as a result of something that God has already done. They can't be taken apart. And so, so John's able to say that we, we can't love God if we don't love his children. He says that in chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. <clears throat> and loving God is one way. Not the only way, but it's one way of knowing that we also love his children. Of knowing that we have been brought into this, this set of healthy relationships because of God's prior love acting for us through Christ. One way that we know we love his children is by knowing that we love God. And the way that John points to that here is in verse 3. We know that we love him when we keep his commandments. Keeping his commandments can sound heavy. The, the minute that word shows up, the word commandments, uh, the, the whole beautiful picture of love in our minds can kind of vaporize and feel like here we are back again in the realm of duty. It's something heavy for us to carry. Relationships are great, but here we are now that we got into the relationships and we've got work to do. The minute the word commandments shows up, it can sound like a burden. And it's not. And John wants to make clear that in fact, even the keeping of commandments as an expression of love for God is the opposite of a burden. And that's where he's going to go in the second half of verse 3 through verse 5. <clears throat> He says in second half of verse 3, And his commandments are not burdensome. Why? Why aren't they burdensome? Because lots of commandments are. His commandments are not burdensome. <clears throat> because the effort spent to win is not a burdensome effort. That's the way John explains it in the first half of Verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. That's why his commandments are not burdensome. Because everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Again, like I mentioned earlier, you might not feel like you're overcoming the world right now. You might feel like you're losing in the world. He's going to be talking about a different kind of overcoming. A real kind, the real kind, the real kind of winning, the, the winning that is worth the effort, that makes the effort feel like it's not burdensome. We actually, we actually feel sometimes what it's like to make the effort to win that makes that effort not feel burdensome, that makes it feel motivating, that makes us want to keep going. January 3rd, 1993, long, long time ago, the AFC first round playoff game, the Buffalo Bills versus the Houston Oilers. It's the third quarter. Uh, the Bills have come out of halftime just being crushed by the Oilers. It was 28 to 3 at halftime. They've come out. They're, they're trying to see if they can pull something together. And then the Oilers intercept a pass and run it back for a touchdown. It's 35-3 to with about eight and a half minutes left in the third quarter. 
The Bills are missing their starting quarterback, Jim Kelly. Uh, they can't seem to make any progress under their second-string quarterback, Frank Reich. And then with 8 minutes and 52 seconds left in the third quarter, Reich throws a long touchdown pass to Don Beebe. Then they recover an onside kick. And just when it seems impossible, the game completely turns around. The Bills go on to win 41-38 to in a game that has come to be known simply as the comeback. Now, in that game, imagine, imagine four, uh, fourth quarter, you're, you're uh, sitting on the sideline and you overhear a conversation between Frank Reich and his wide receiver, Andre Reed. And, and Frank Reich says to him, man, this, this is, I'm, I'm getting really tired of this. This is so hard. I have to keep running around. I have to keep throwing when I throw, lots of times I get hit by somebody and knocked down. The minute I get done throwing a touchdown pass, I, I hardly even get to rest. And then I have to go out and do it all again. And I'm getting really tired of this. This is really hard. I'm going to be sore tomorrow. And Andre Reed responds and, and he says, man, I know I have to run so far for every single touchdown that we get. And And the coaches, Levy and the other coaches, keep saying, let's go, keep pushing, don't give up. And it seems like all I do around here is work. That conversation never happened, as you can imagine, because the effort spent to win is not burdensome. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Our overcoming, our winning, doesn't look like the world's way of winning. We need to know that. We don't win by beating someone else to take what we want. That, that's how the world overcomes. The world overcomes by taking away power in order to get for themselves what they want. And for us, overcoming the world doesn't mean retaking power or reclaiming our rights. Sometimes our kind of overcoming can look even like losing. That shouldn't be a surprise to us given the way Jesus overcame for us. Paul uses the same word, same root for overcoming when he describes what life feels like for us as Christ's people, <clears throat> in Romans 8.36, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he says in verse 37 of Romans 8, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we live that out in the way that he describes in Romans 12, when he, when he says, having told us, don't take your own revenge, leave that to God. Here's the way that you overcome. Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Sometimes it's by laying ourselves down. Sometimes it may even be by, by following Jesus and literally laying down our own lives. More often it happens by laying down our rights in the smaller moments of life and overcoming evil, overcoming those who oppose us, those who abuse us with good. I was really struck with that this week that we face all kinds of frustrations right now. It feels like they're elevated. And, and to, to know that we don't, have to, we don't have to win, we don't have to overcome by proving that we're right about our particular positions on things. We can play a longer game. We don't have to win by taking back power and protecting our rights and proving that all of our opinions are correct because John tells us who it is that overcomes, who it is that overcomes the world, who it is that overcomes the world's way of overcoming. In verse 4, this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. If, if you have to win by proving yourself, if you have to win by taking back power, by protecting your own rights, then of course, like everyone else, you're going to go through life scared. And you may have those confident moments when, when you've just proven yourself right, or when it feels like things are strong, but you never know when that's going to be taken back away from you. And so you go through life defeated. But if victory is on the other side of laying down your rights like your victor did, then then nobody can take it away from you. Because no matter how, how many rights they take away, you are an overcomer of the world, not by what you have done, not by what you've accomplished, but by John says, our faith. This, what, what John means by saying that the victory that overcomes the world is, is our faith, he doesn't mean by the fact that we're really good at believing. We, we have this really strong ability to put confidence in something that allows us then to rise up and win. That, that's not how faith brings victory for us. Faith brings victory for us not because we're so good at believing, but because the one we believe in is so good. And who is that? Why is it that believing in him makes us overcomers? Because that's what John says in verse 5. The one that overcomes, the one that wins, is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Again, shorthand here for that, that bigger description of what, what John says throughout his letter. And John expands on that shorthand, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, believing in all that he is as he is in verses 6 through 8. This, he says, is he who came by water and blood. Our victory was secured The victory that we live out by trusting in Jesus was secured by the real Jesus, by the whole Jesus. We we needed the kind of victor, the kind of winner for us 
that was a good enough person. And we needed him to be more than a good enough person. We needed him to die for us. And so, verse 6, John says, He came not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Now that's an interesting description, I think, one that we see uh, not, not really anywhere else in, in Scripture. And I think the distinction that John is making there is, is intended to tell us that Jesus came not only to be good enough, but to, to die a death that was good enough for us as well. The commentators wrestle with the question of what does it mean that he came by the water? It could mean that he, he, it could be a reference to his natural birth, that Jesus was a real human being. And certainly John wants to affirm that Jesus was a real human being. He, he wants to affirm in chapter 4 verse 2 that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And I think that that coming by the water, does refer in one sense to his real humanity, but it goes a step past that. I think that it's referring more specifically to his baptism. And it's at his baptism that Jesus gets the endorsement by God that you are good enough. You are the right kind of human being. You are what a human being is supposed to be. That's what it meant that he came by the water. And there were some who were willing to admit that Jesus was the right kind of person. That he was a good example for us. And John wants to make sure and set before his readers, we must trust in the whole Jesus. It, it took Jesus not only being the right kind of person, but giving everything up for you in order for you to win. And so he came not only by the water, but by the water and the blood. And now there is a, a testimony about Jesus. And there are three that testify. The water, that there's this endorsement that Jesus is a good enough person. And the blood, a good enough sacrifice, that are both held before our view by God himself. Specifically, by the Spirit. There are three that testify, verse 7, and then in verse 8, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. It is by bearing witness to Jesus that the Spirit, just like Jesus said he would, convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's in John 16. Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He'll show them about their need. He'll, he'll set before their eyes what righteousness really is. And he says, that'll be necessary because I won't be with you anymore. You can see me with your eyes now, he says to his disciples. You can see a visible picture of what human righteousness looks like. And that visible picture won't be there. But Jesus says, when the Spirit comes... He will take of what is mine and give it to you. And so the Spirit bears witness that the person is good enough, the message of his baptism, and that his work is good enough, the message of his death. So in chapter 1, John has described Christians as those who walk in the light. 
the light of God's unchanging character and the light of Christ's sacrifice. He said, said it's only those who walk in the light that, that, that really know God. And the reason people don't walk in the light is because it exposes us. It exposes us for who we really are. It exposes us for what we really need. If I'm the kind of person who needs the Son of God to become a human and die for me, what does that say about me? But the good news is that it doesn't only expose me to myself. It exposes me to the Son. It exposes me to the good enoughness of His life and of His death. And here He is, ready and able to save someone like you and like me. And the Spirit bears witness to the fact that Jesus is good enough to win for us and to extend victory to us, to allow us to live out that victory. It's something we share together, unearned by us, perfectly earned by Jesus. You begin to see how that shared victory that we share together produces an impulse to love one another. Given what we share together, we've been rescued together by the same person, by the same sacrifice. And it's God himself who bears witness about that work and about that person. Living in this world, do you, do you long for a source of news that you can trust? Somebody who will analyze what's going on in the world and answer your most pressing questions about it in a way that's really reliable, in a way that you can trust. Maybe you listen to the news, you listen maybe to different news sources, maybe just to different people that you, that you, that you know and perhaps get frustrated sometimes and think, wow, almost everybody I hear from feels like in some way or another their view of the world is infected by fear or by ambition, and it's really hard for me to find one person that I can just wholeheartedly trust, where I, I can hear their message and say, okay, I know that I can bank on this. We have that. <clears throat> it's not only the testimony of those who have seen Jesus with their own human eyes. We have that. There are those who have seen Jesus with their own human eyes, and who now bear testimony about that Jesus. John started his letter by describing that. He can say, there are those of us who saw his baptism. I saw his blood. The Spirit has shown me what both of those things mean. And there is a greater testimony than the testimony that is brought by man alone. And it is the testimony of God, if, verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Because it's the testimony of God, because this is God speaking about his son, there really are only two choices. And those choices are a matter of life and death. Deciding that Jesus is a great example and nothing more. Deciding that Jesus is only a great example is not 
kind of a cool academic decision that people can take or leave, and it it doesn't really matter all that much. It really is a matter of life and death because, verse 10, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Particularly those who do not believe the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Once again, when it comes to the question of Jesus, when it comes to the question of the whole Jesus, that he was a good enough person and died a good enough death, there are only two choices, to believe in God's testimony about Jesus or not to believe it. And it is a matter of life and death. Verse 11, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son and only in his son. Verse 12, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. It's the life that means belonging to God as his child. This is not simply never ending existence in a nice place. Jesus has said this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To be brought into this new relationship in God's family, with God as your father, with other people begotten of God as your brothers and sisters. Whoever has that life shares that life with everyone else who has it. We share it together. We share that victory together. So here you have your trusted source for news that you can rely on. The message that can really be relied on about what really matters most. And that message is about someone who's actually good enough and who did what was good enough by giving himself for you. The news that gives you the kind of victory that no human power can take away. And it's victory that you share with those who are born of God. Because the only begotten, the uniquely begotten Son of God gave himself up for you, you have been begotten of God and others have as well. You may have heard the phrase that nothing unifies like a common enemy. And and we see people unified by common enemies a lot. I think there's something that unifies more. Nothing unifies like a common victory. Imagine the locker room after the Bills game. Whatever disagreements had taken place throughout the course of the season, whatever disagreements had taken place in the first half or in the locker room at halftime, those disagreements had vaporized because those players and those coaches shared a common victory. And that victory will vaporize. And our victory will not. The testimony about the son's victory. The son and his victory is what we share. It's what holds us together. And we have the opportunity to show the world that. To show the world that we have a greater reason to love one another. A reason to love one another that can't be interrupted. Even when we're shocked to find that we differ in other ways. We share a common victory in his son. A victory that has 
brought us into a new father-child relationship with God himself and that has brought us into a new relationship with one another. Father, we come to you this morning because of the testimony that you have borne by your spirit about Jesus. That he is the kind of person we needed him to be. And that because of who we are, he died the kind of death that we needed him to die. We rely on him today, and I pray that as we, as we long for victory in life, as we long to end in a place where all is well, that we would do that by trusting, not in human power, not by the world's way of getting victory, but by trusting in Jesus himself and by following him in all that he has done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.